Okay. Um, we're approaching Advent and Hanukkah. Um, and next week we have our Thanksgiving service. So as Advent begins, uh, we'll begin the lectionary year, which is year C. We're concluding year B now. And today we're in the lectionary B section, nearing the end. And the, but we're in the early portions of the Torah passages uh, because the Jewish lectionary uh, began several weeks ago. And so uh, there is kind of that disconnect in some ways. Um, from time to time, I use the uh, portions and passages of Judaism and Christianity as the basis of the sermon. That's the tradition in both Judaism and Christianity to take the weekly readings and do the homily or the sermon or the midrash from that, from that perspective. And I'm, when I first uh, heard that, I thought, what a, what a lazy way of doing sermon preparation. Uh, little did I know <laughs> what that involves. But the reality is that these passages are put together over a period of time with an understanding of the whole of the scriptures. And it's fascinating to me how they do connect. Now, they don't connect linearly. They connect in a way that uh, sometimes you know this if you have uh, watched a series of TV programs over again or a series of movies over again. You're watching them and you go, I don't remember that part. And that part makes sense in the context of the whole. And it is that brilliance of God's word that the rabbis and the early Christians, the church fathers, found as they began to look at the whole of the scriptures and find the connections. I've been fascinated at looking at the uh, weekly readings from the Western Church, the Eastern Church, and the uh, Jewish communities, particularly depending on how you look at the weekend. When I was first doing it, I would look at the, well, the Old Testament is first, so we'll start with the Torah. And, and I think that makes sense, and there's, there's a reason for that. So I would use the Shabbat readings and then match the first day of the week readings of, of uh, Christianity. And the linkage of which verses went with which made a lot of sense. Then I realized that the first day of the week is Sunday, and the readings for the Torah are to be read all through the week. And so I now do them, as you know, with the... Christian readings uh, that include the Old, Older Testament uh, and the Psalms and the Gospel and the Epistles on Sunday and then conclude with the readings that come from the Torah and the Half Torah on Shabbat, the seventh day of the week. And I, I like that connection better, but it's amazing to me that the connections are there nonetheless. As we uh, look today, our readings are um, very much uh, timely in that I've called this message Facing Uncertainty, uh, and the passages of the week seem appropriate in light of recent events around the world, and specifically the uh, terrible events that took place in Paris uh, Friday and uh, over the weekend here, um, uh, that has really brought the world an awareness again of the great evil that takes place in the world. And in some sense, the political uh, impotence uh, to do much about these things. 
that makes people uh, fearful and frustrated. And so I thought that we need a reminder of the perspective that we should have in this context. And I found that in these uh, passages. Now, I'm not going to take them in the traditional reading order. I've rearranged them into the connection that I think uh, makes sense for this message. They could be done in another order. The danger of that is to pull them out of context. You know that would be a disaster. So I've tried to maintain the context of these passages in what we're talking about. Now, what's the total context? Well, the scriptures are a story of a holy God, a holy land, and a holy people. And that holy God is the God of Abraham. The holy land is the land that was promised to Abraham. And that holy people are the children of Abraham, which is first and foremost the children of Israel, and also the children of Abraham by faith, those of us from among the Gentiles who have come to the same faith as Abraham through the promised one, the Messiah. The Bible cannot be understood without this context. It's very dangerous to think of the Bible as just a book that makes sense based on the verses you know. I talk about this in uh, classes. Uh, it's very easy to pull things out of context and not really catch them for what they, they are. I, uh, I mentioned in a class, I think last week or the week before, many of, of us have seen the entire Star Trek series of movies and we've seen the entire Star Wars series of movies and people talk in that lingo all the time. So if somebody came to you and they said, I'm really into this, this is really great, and they said, my favorite part is this uh, interaction uh, between Spock and Kirk about Spock's dad, Yoda, you know, the other guy with the pointed ears, and the, the destruction of the, the, uh, the force that needs to be dealt with, you would immediately go, what kind of an idiot is talking? When you know the Bible in context, when you hear people quoting verses, you begin to realize they don't know the story. They just know these popular applications of verses, and they don't really know them in context. And when you take a verse out of its context, it's no longer the Word of God. It's now a weak imitation. And we want to be careful about that. It was Satan who used a Bible text against Jesus that Jesus realized was out of context and therefore gave a biblical text that would maintain that context. Uh, go ahead and throw yourself off. He'll give his angels charge concerning you. You are not to tempt the Lord your God. You cannot interpret that verse this way because it does damage to this verse. So I don't want to do damage to the verses, but I think if you know the story, you'll see the emphasis that the readings for this week have given us. So we're going to begin with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 22. It's very hard for me to do this without reading the entire chapter, and I can't do that because I'm trying to save a little time uh, today. Uh, chapter 1 of, Eph of Ephesians is really about the Jews who came to Messiah first, and chapter 2 is about the Gentiles who have also come and have been joined with them. And in verse 14 he says, He has made himself, and he himself is our peace, 
or Shalom, who has made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that he himself might make the two into one man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it, having put to death the enmity, not putting to death the law, the enmity between Jew and Gentile, which was there because of the covenantal structure and the law that was interpreted as keeping them separate from the Gentiles and the Gentiles being separate from God. But now we both have access. So he says, uh, He came and preached peace to you who were far away, that's the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, that's the Jews. For through him we both have one access Uh, our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fit together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit." God is building a temple, a temple of flesh made of Jews and Gentiles who will belong to each other and will have the Spirit of God dwelling in them so that we will be a manifestation of God in that context. So we see here that Yeshua or Jesus is our peace, our shalom. But he's reconciled Jew and Gentile into one new humanity and a new creation through his cross, and by his flesh, by removing the enmity between us. How then can Christians be anti-Semitic? And how then can Jews not see in Christians a fulfillment of the promises that the Gentiles would also come in? Because we are both struggling with our flesh. That partial blindness of the Jew that Paul talks about. And for those of us who are Gentiles, often are uh, boasting against the natural branches. And in that process, there's a problem. However, the day is coming when we will suffer alike. And that day is coming quicker. And so we want to keep... in mind that the Bible cannot be understood without realizing that God is at work among his ancient people, the Jews, and God is at work among the Gentiles who are being called out to his name. And if we get tunnel vision on that, we will begin to work against the plan of God. So what is the plan of God? Psalm 16, 1 to 11, is also one of the readings for this week. And it is a fascinating verse. Um, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. 
The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You supported my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, my glory rejoices, and my flesh will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Now this verse is a fascinating verse because it also has a dual meaning. The last one has a dual meaning of taking Jew and Gentile and bringing us together in the Lord. This one has a connection between the Messiah, because these verses are quoted in the New Testament in reference to Jesus, whose soul was not abandoned in Hades, and whose flesh did not undergo corruption because of his resurrection. But it is also our hope, because he lives, we shall live also. So we have a unity in the people of God, the saints on earth, though a lot of people have chosen another God, which we will not speak of. But we hope in the one who is at the right hand of the Father and where there is hope and security and a trust. And so you can see that these passages have these dual meanings, both in our unity with Israel and with our connection to the God of Israel through his Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And that hope is that our flesh will not be abandoned to Hades or Sheol and will, and will not undergo complete decay in the utter sense, in the sense of forever. And that we find in Daniel chapter 12, another passage for this week's reading. The scripture says, Now at that time Michael, the great prince who stands over the sons of your people, referring to Israel, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be saved, will be rescued. Boy, I like that book. Okay. Many who, of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, that is, those who are in the book. But the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who who will have insight, will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness will be stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal the words and seal up the book until the end. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and one on the other bank. And one said to the man dressed in linen, uh, who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? I heard the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river. He raised his hand and his, uh, and his left towards heaven, his left and right hand towards heaven, and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they are finished shattering the power of the holy people, all these vents 
events will be completed. So he's talking about this period at the end that is identified in the book of Revelation as three and a half years or 42 months or, or time, times, and uh, half a time. And he says, as for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, when will these, what will be the outcome of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged, purified and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Again, this approximate three and a half year period. But as for you, go your way to the end, then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. He's given the promise of resurrection. But the resurrection is going to happen in a very difficult time with a lot of difficulty and persecution and dangers that uh, make us, in some sense, not really ready for that day to happen. Which leads us to the gospel reading for this week, which is the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 13. Also beginning at verse 14. Jesus is speaking. He's talking about a persecution uh, and uh, the betrayal of one believer against another. People will rise up against their parents and have them put to death. Can't imagine uh, that in a historical context, but in a more American individual hatred for other people's narcissistic, self-centered thing. It's not that far-fetched. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is in the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it will not be in winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he will shorten those days. And if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, there he is, do not believe them. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, because I have told you everything in advance. We are, we are to learn these scriptures because... In our lifetime it will happen or in the lifetime of our children or grandchildren or those. We must keep that message and preparation alive. We have a tendency to think if it's not going to happen in my life, I don't have to worry about it. But we have children and grandchildren that it may happen in their lives. And we need to be passing this truth and this understanding along uh, in, a, in a clear sense. The way forward and the timing is uncertain. 
But that persecution will come is certain. One of the statements that was made this week by the, the group claiming credit for the Paris terrorism is that they chose that sporting event because two Christian nations were playing. Now, I'm not sure I would claim those nations as Christian. I have a different theology regarding national Christianity. But these people are going after those who name the name of Christ, whether they know who they are or not, right? Just like a few, uh, a year or so ago, uh, somebody not knowing who we are scratched a swastika in the door of the Disciple Center on the other side. Because we have a menorah, we must be Jewish. Uh, the, the opponents of God are not brilliant. They will not just find the true Christian, the true Jew, and go after them. They will go after anyone who names that name. You watch the marginal people begin to reject that name, to reject that identity. To reject anything that has that. We're already being pushed to the margins. What begins to happen is you say, why don't we make it clear that we're not them? And the Bible says, as this persecution comes, there will be a great falling away. Pretty easy to become a believer or claim to be a believer in in this world now, in America at least. Very difficult in the Middle East. It may become difficult here as well. So those passages that we see in the uh, Christian readings um, tie in, I think, to the readings that are found in uh, the Jewish readings. Uh, And so I want to move to them. In Genesis chapters 28 to 32, we're not going to read those. There's several chapters. We have the story of Jacob And it begins with the story of Jacob. That's the reading for this week. Begins with the story of Jacob uh, being at Bethel and uh, having the vision and uh, realizing that God is there and and God gives him the renewal of the covenant that he gave to Abraham. And Jacob says, if God will be with me and he will take me there and he will bring me back and he will be my God, then, then I will make him my God and I will serve him and I will give tithes to him and, and, and I will be his servant, he will be my God. There is a vow to God. And of course, what happens is, Jacob goes to get a wife, and he gets a wife from his uncle, Uncle Laban. And what does Laban do? He switches the women on him. And so, the persecution doesn't always come from a stranger enemy. Sometimes it comes from those who are supposed to be close to us. We must learn who we can trust and who we can't trust in the community of faith in this process. Uh, And part of his life is that process. But God blesses him even when Laban is doing, you know, the story of the cattle and the sheep and the, you know, he puts the striped stakes and his sheep begin to prosper and so they switch the deal on him. The Lord will watch over us and I'm using that collectively us, not individually us, collectively us, so that his blessing will be upon his people. That doesn't mean that some of them won't suffer even the pains of death. So finally, what we reach is 
him coming back and it ends right about the time when he is going to be reunited with his brother, which is problematic, but that's another reading for another time. That general story is a pattern of Israel, of Israel being promised by God, making a commitment to God, varying somewhat from the commitment, other people abusing them in the commitment, but God keeping his word all the way through it. And in the context of that, we come to the passage that I do want to talk about, which is in Hosea. So if you'll turn to the book of Hosea. Chapter 12. In Hosea chapter 12 verse 14. I want you to see the connection here. Twelve, twelve. I'm sorry. Twelve, twelve. Jacob fled to a land of Avram, and Israel worked for a wife. And for a wife he kept sheep. But by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel from Egypt. You see the connections? The connections are that the life of Jacob is connected to the life of Moses. And the whole story of Israel. That holy God, that holy people, and that holy land. And he goes on... Through this process, we don't have time to read all of it, but I want to move, if you look at chapter 13, you'll see that Israel, called Ephraim there, uh, is really not obeying the way he's supposed to, and they run into difficulty. But it doesn't change the plan and purpose of God. So we turn to chapter 14 of Hosea, and I want to read the nine verses there. So God says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously, that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we again say our God to the work of our hands. For in you the orphan finds mercy. God says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. My anger is turned away from them. And I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily. He will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout and his beauty will be like the olive tree. His fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in the shadow will again raise grain. And they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know these things. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. So what am I getting to? Darkness is coming upon this creation. And if we have not prepared ourselves with the light of God's word, we are going to stumble and we are going to misinterpret and we are going to misunderstand. We can't live with just the idea 
that I have Jesus in my heart and I'm saved and therefore I'm okay. We have got to live through things and the process of living through them demands that we gain insight from God's word. And so that insight from God's word is about how we live, not just about believing. And that brings us to another gospel reading for this week, which is Luke chapter 10. Luke 10, verse 25. You know this passage, a lawyer stands up and puts him to the test saying, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, what is written in the Torah? How does it read to you? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this. And you will live. Wishing to justify himself, he said, And who is my neighbor? And then we get the story of the Good Samaritan. I think we have to think about who is our neighbor. Who is our neighbor is not who is my neighbor. And that's what this story is about. It's not about who's your neighbor. Who's going to do for me? It's who are you going to do for? And the story of the Good Samaritan is that he took care of those who were poor and weak and needy and suffering. And the ones who were religious and holy didn't do that. We cannot let holiness keep us from doing righteousness. And we can't let salvation keep us from caring for the weak and the poor among us. We have to begin that process. I'm really happy that that is an attitude in this congregation and that you try to uh, learn to do tzedakah and and help others and, and do that. I think that those skills taught before the children will be critical in times when some of us are not allowed to work and some of us are not allowed to have access to things because we're going to have to learn to live below our means and help others in that kind of context. Because that is the pathway that we are going to have to walk. So we come to our last passage, which is in Hebrews chapter 10. The writer to Hebrews is reminding them that they need to continue... In the process that they have begun. So in chapter 10 verse 31. The writer says this. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is going to. Justify his people. Whom he has saved by grace. Who are written in his book. And he is going to judge those. Who have done evil. Particularly those who have done evil in his name. And then he says this. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, when you first came to wisdom in Christ, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Some of us may be the ones who lose things and are persecuted 
Some of us may be those who participate with them because if we mourn with those who mourn and we rejoice with those who rejoice, we are to share with those who are suffering in the name of the Lord. We have got to find a way to be connected and help those believers who are suffering. Not quite sure how to do this, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't involve changing the color of my Facebook picture. That's fine as a statement, but if it's only a statement and we don't do something, then we are not living out this text. He says, You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one, that eternal perspective. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. You have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, when you have obeyed God in the commandments, you may receive what is promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving or the saving of the soul. The parable of the sower talks about the seed that sprouted with great rejoicing over the salvation of the Lord. But when the sun came up and the persecution hit, it dried and withered. I sometimes wonder how we will endure, we Americans who are, have it pretty easy, how we would endure if we were being systematically hunted and killed and beheaded and we were being uh, taken advantage of and we were having our wives and our children raped and we had those things happening, would we still be enamored with Jesus? Would we still be faithful to the call that we've been called to? Now the truth is, right now, we're in no immediate danger of that. But we should begin to prepare ourselves as if that day will come because in one generation, we know that day will come. So we need to prepare ourselves and our children in the meantime while we're going to sports events and doing all the other stuff that we need to do. We are not to throw away our confidence or shrink back and withdraw. We have to face the uncertain future with faith, hope, and love, and when persecuted, with joy. Because we know His peace. Now, if you think about it, faith, hope, love, joy, and peace are the five candles of Advent. I think the church knew what she was doing when she put those emphasis together as the world gets darker and darker into winter. We light the lights of faith, hope, love, joy, and peace.
Let's pray.